0: we could uh, hang our thoughts on this morning, it would be from uh, Isaiah. uh, uh, Isaiah 58, verse 11, which says, The Lord will guide you at all times. There are lots of other verses in the Bible that uh, I could have used. I could have used the one that David used in Psalm Thirty-two, verse 7 when he said the Lord said to him I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go I will counsel you and watch over you. Now the context in which the verse in Isaiah comes Isaiah is a little bit like the Bible has 66 chapters the Bible has 66 books the first 39 books of Isaiah, he rages again uh, to the people of the fact that they have forgotten their God. They have forgotten the laws of Moses. They have forgotten to trust and obey in the God who they started to worship there at Mount Sinai. And uh, in the last 27 chapters of uh, Isaiah he's then reminding them still but always, always encouraging them if you will obey and if you will trust my word then I will lead you. And so on this closing uh, Sunday before the new year I want to talk just for a few moments about the guidance of God in a kind of general way. See, often when you go to, say, you go to church, like we have this morning, you say, Amen, to prayers, asking God to guide you, to inspire you, and in what you think. And I dare say your private prayers also, When you're in a fix about something, you ask God to show you what you ought to do. Now when you offer a prayer like that, what do you expect God to do, if you expect Him to do anything? You have to be very careful when what you pray for and what you pray about what kind of answer that you might get. There was an old clergyman who was a cricketer and uh, he prayed to the Lord one day asking the Lord that there might be cricket played in heaven. And the Lord answered his prayer. An angel visited him in a dream and the angel said, yes, there is cricket in heaven. That's the good news, but the bad news is you're in the team next week. (laughs) So be careful what you pray about. How do you suppose how do you suppose uh, that God will inspire what you think and guide you? Now that's the question I'm going to try to talk about. It's a question that concerns us all. So let's start first of all with an incident in history. In the second century uh, AD there was a curious movement known as Montanism. And it appeared in the church. Now the Montanists were almost crazy about uh, being guided by God. And they could hardly think of anything else, whatever. And they were not absolutely wrong in what they believed. They got hold of a truth, but they exaggerated it. They believed in divine guidance too much. And like most people who believe too much, they thought everybody else ought to do, do the same. And so they heartily despised people who did not agree with them or go along with them. Now, Mount Montanis, from which the movement got its name, had been a pagan priest before he was converted to Christianity. He was a a convert. And converts, in anything, can easily become fanatical. So you, if you're ever converted to something, whether it's uh, social credit or um, compost gardening or vegetarianism or whatever, or to existentialism, that's a new kind of modern philosophy. An exist- existentialist is a person who rejects its externally imposed values and codes in the belief that a person has to make his or own choices in terms that make sense of his her, or her own existence. But that is not what God wanted us to do. He wanted us to believe in him and his laws. It's a modern philosophy, and sometimes it's uh, led to despair. Sometimes they've been shown great human uh, courage. And many uh, existentialists are atheists, though some have sought to try and uh, uh, integrate it into the Christian faith. However... Just beware of becoming a fanatic. Montanus declared that he was a prophet and the bearer of a new revelation. He gave out that the age of the Holy Spirit had arrived and was to precede the end of the world. He claimed to be inspired and by that he meant his words were not really his but God's. He was just like a violin played upon by the bow of God. The Holy Spirit spoke through him so that his teaching was not his own but altogether was God's. So he said, and for a time, Montanism caused a lot of excitement and it won many followers in uh, Asia Minor and North Africa. But as is the case with similar movements throughout the Christian history, the excitement did not last. It died down and the movement petered out. The reason why it succeeded for a time was it exaggerated Something that is true. And so it led some good people astray. For it is true that we are living in the age of the Holy Spirit. The age of the Holy Spirit had in fact come before Montanus appeared on the scene. The Holy Spirit arrived on the day of Pentecost. It's true that God is speaking to men and women today wherever they have ears to hear. It's true that today God can and does inspire women and men and guide them. The Montanists did well to emphasize these things but they were not content to emphasize they exaggerated and so they turned it into a falsehood. You see truth exaggerated is truth falsified. It is not true that God inspires men and women by overriding or if you like by passing their natural powers Of thinking and choosing. He does not play on us as a bow plays on a violin or as a dictator treats his subjects. He always respects the freedom which he has given to us, the freedom to choose what we do. Nor are any of God's prophets infallible. No man is entitled to claim blind obedience from us, whether he be called the Pope or a comrade or what you will. If a man claims to be a prophet from God, we should be very critical of them and we should follow him only so far as we are convinced that what he says is true. For it says in uh, the first Corinthians, who, for who among you knows the thoughts of man except the man's spirit within him? And in the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Jesus was the only earthly man who knew exactly the Spirit of God. Montanism is a specimen of many exaggerations that have cropped up in the history of the church. And they still creep up today. For instance, when people look upon the Bible as though it was miraculously dictated by God, as though it could not contain any mistakes, They're falling into the same kind of error that the Montanists did. They're exaggerating a truth and so turning it into a falsehood. A very shrewd and nonsensical lady saw much of this in the early part of the last century. A Quaker lady who wrote some articles known as group movements uh, of the past uh, and experiments in guidance. In those articles, she tells of a woman each morning having consecrated the day to the Lord as soon as she woke, would ask him then whether she was to get up or not and would not stir till the voice spoke to her and told her to dress. And as she put on each article, she asked the Lord if she was to put it on. And very often the Lord will tell tell, tell her to put on the right shoe and leave off the left shoe. Sometimes she was told to put on both stockings and no shoes. And sometimes both shoes and no stockings. And it was the same with every article of her dress. Then there was the invalid. When her hostess visiting her left some money by accident uh, on the dressing table, the old lady had an impression that the Lord wanted her to take the money in, in order to illustrate the truth all things are yours. Which she did. And she hid it under the pillar and prefabricated a story when the hostess came back for it. And she was eventually thrown out as a thief. Another incident was about a quite refined lady, rather past middle age, who explained that there have been times when in order to help my friends to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I have felt distinctly led of the Lord to have them get into bed with me and lie back to back without any nightgown between us. Now these pathetic stories are sadly typical of what ensues once the basic Mistake of guidance has been made. It's true that the Bible is inspired. Paul was anxious to get this over to his son in the faith, Timothy, when he said to him, all scripture is God-breathed. Not dictated, Note, God-breathed and is useful for teaching... Rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. The Bible is not a collection of stories, fables, myths, or merely human ideas about God. God revealed his purpose to certain believers who wrote down for his people Peter said, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, this process is known as inspiration. The writers wrote from their own personal, historical, and cultural context. Although they used their own minds, talents, language, and style, they wrote what God wanted them to write. Scripture is completely trustworthy because God was in control of the writing. The Bible is God-breathed, not dictated by God, word by word. It means that the Holy Spirit quickened, quickened the natural powers of writers, whether they were poets or whether they were historians or lawgivers, so that they were able to record the good news of God and of Jesus in such a way that it can get across in any age all over the world, despite the mistakes and inconsistencies that occur in this, as in all human literature. The whole Bible, the whole Bible is God-inspired because it is inspired and trustworthy. We should read it and apply it to our lives. The Bible is our standard of testing everything else that claims to be true. It's our our safeguard against false teaching and our source of guidance of how we should live. It's our only knowledge of how we should be saved. God wants to show you and me what is true and to equip us to live for Him. How much time do you spend in God's Word? Read it regularly to discover God's truth and to be confident in your own life and faith. Develop a plan for reading the whole Bible, not just the familiar passages. There's a very fine uh, translation of the NIV, come out in chronological order. It's I think 22 pounds sterling, but it is the best investment that you could make for 1930, uh, 19, 2013. Uh, to get this this book written in chronological order arranged or regarded it as being arranged in order of their occurrence and uh, if you wanted details of where to get it from I can give you them afterwards but it's something that you could do on your own, you could do it with your partner you could do it with a little group, 365 days of the year, a portion of scripture that takes you through the plan of God for you and this world in which we live. What an investment. When we ask God to inspire us and guide us, we are not asking Him to override our powers of thinking and deciding. We're not asking Him to save us the trouble of thinking a thing out or of making difficult decisions. What we are asking is that the Holy Spirit will enable us to think clearly and to decide rightly. David in the shepherd's psalm said, he leads me in the way of righteousness for his sake, for God's sake. And if we think quite honestly, how easy it is to favour ourselves and to deceive ourselves, we should be grateful that we can ask God to help us to think straight and that he can answer our prayers. Consider how it would uh, work out, say for, in the important decision of making a vocation in life. How is John Smith to decide what work God wants him to do in the world? Whether he wants him to be a stockbroker or to be a farmer or to be a journalist or whatever. He is not to expect a sudden, overwhelming flash of illumination which will settle the matter once and for all. That is certainly not the normal way in which God tells people what he wants them to do. Though there are exceptions, sudden calls, which like all other exceptions, prove the rule. Normally, a woman or a man discover their vocation after a very long and difficult period of thought and doubt. And the answer to the question, what I ought to do, becomes clear only gradually. God deals with us out in the open air, not in greenhouses. Or let me put it this way a person's vocation does not normally flash upon them like lightning, but it dawns like the sun and often like the sun on a cloudy and even foggy morning. All that they can say is once they were in the dark about what they ought to do, now they are in the light. But they cannot fix the exact moment when their course became clear. So in order to discover his vocation, John Smith will have to consider to what kind of work is suited, or cut out, as we say. He will have to consider whether this job or that job attracts him, which is not the same as asking whether it, he will find it easy or pleasant, he will have to make sure that he's not just playing for safety and security or a soft life, but that he is prepared to do something queer and risky and even eccentric if that seems the right thing to do. All the same, finding... A vocation does not mean following your own whims. John Smith will have to get and to weigh the advice of those, of those people who know him well, who are best qualified to advise him. And then, of course, he will have to prove that he can qualify for the work uh, he believes he ought to do, which may mean passing the requisite examinations. The process of discovering his vocation may then take several years. Now when he asks God to guide him in the matter, he's asking God to watch over and supervise all the stages in this process and so enable him to finally reach a right decision for himself. He's not asking God to show him a short shortcut to a decision. He's not asking to be saved the trouble of wrestling with problems of his vocation. But he is asking God from choosing what is merely or easy or comfortable or ready-made. No. Left to himself, that is what he might choose. Only God can inspire us to go for the highest and the hardest work that we are capable of. And if the same, is true of all smaller decisions we have to make week by week. Whether to do this or that, or whether to go here or there, or whether or not to buy such a thing or not. whether to follow one pursuit or another. The Holy Spirit can guide us in each case to the right decision by helping us to weigh up the pros and cons and carefully and honestly without anxiety and fuss by giving us a sense of proportion or a sense of humor if necessary. The Holy Spirit can enable us to be reasonable and to stand on our own feet when we feel inclined to depend too much on other people. The Holy Spirit can prevent us from following the first idea that comes into our head, from trusting too much on our first impressions, or from jumping to conclusions. And these are the things that we ask him to do when we pray for divine guidance and inspiration. Of course, occasions do arise when you have to make a sudden decision, when there's no time for reflection or for careful weighing of the pros and cons. But if you are in the habit of asking God to guide you and if you really mean what you say when you pray to Him then you can be sure that in a sudden emergency the Holy Spirit will enable you to see immediately what you ought to do. So it is possible for every one of us to prove in our own experience the truth of these promises, the Lord will be your guide at all times and he will not fail you nor forsake you if you will but trust and obey. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. So may 2013 be a year when we feel guided by God because we have read and understand his word. God bless you.